Paula Wiseman, and on this month's podcast, I'm going to be chatting with British comedy legend Freddie Davis. So, hi, Freddie. Thanks for chatting with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, um, you've had this incredible career over the past 50 years, but let's go right back to the beginning. You were a Butlins Redcoat initially. That's right. Um, I came out of national service in 1958 and went straight into Butlins. I had an interview for Butlins. I don't think I was very good at the interview, but one person at the interview was the entertainment manager of Butlins at Skegness. Um, obviously thought there was something in me, and he employed me. And he became, you know, my mentor, and and I finished up doing six years with Butlins, and I considered that to be my apprenticeship in show business. It, it was amazing. Mm. So what sort of things would you be doing on a day-to-day basis while you were there? Well, <laughs> I was designated as the, the bingo caller, or, the, or they used to call it Tom Bowler in those yeah. days. Yeah, I was a Tom Bowler caller. So it sort of gave me experience in talking to a crowd all the time, because obviously there was a crowd in playing the, the bingo or the Tom Bowler. And, um, and that gave me a wealth of experience. I did that for two seasons, and then they sort of upgraded me and made me what is laughingly called an assistant entertainment <laughs> manager, which meant that I could compare the shows, etc. Um, but I was on the camp with people like Dave Allen and Mike Newman, uh, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience, you know, working with these guys. We were all starting up in the business. We were all in the same, all in the same boat, so to speak. But it was a, a, a wonderful start. Yeah, it seems to be a route that a lot of the well-known comedians took. They, that was kind of their first foot up into into show business. They kind of cut their teeth in Butlins. That's right. Well, absolutely, in those days, mm. there wasn't anywhere else to go. I mean, it was the end of sort of the theatres and variety, you know, in the early 60s. And so there was no... If you wanted to be a turn, you know, particularly a comedy turn, you know, you have to work to audiences all the time. And, of course, Butlins gave one opportunity. No, it must, it must have been great. As you said, you've worked with a lot of fantastic people over the years as well. Um, and, and then, obviously, Opportunity Knocks happened for you in 1964. So how did that That's all right. How did that all come about? Well, that was amazing, really. I mean, it, it sort of came about famous by default. I'd left Butlins in 63 and started working the Northern Clubs. And I got a call from my previous mentor, a man called Frank Mansell, who had employed me at Butlins. And he'd been asked... If he knew anybody who might be able to do a Butlin-type show uh, in Dunoon in Scotland. And I, well, so he thought about me and he knew that I was now out on the road and trying to make a living. So he put me up for it and I got the job. And it was a little show which featured on the front, well, I say on the front, in a little park opposite the weather where the boats, the ferries come in in Danoon in Scotland. And it was just as bad as it sounds. It was a little open-air theatre, and the show was called Fun with Freddy, and it was the absolute opposite. <laughs> <laughs> it was just me. Well, I had a pianist who was, you know, meant... But, you know, it was on the front, it was open-air, it was Danoon wow. in the summer, and Scotland in the summer, it rains a lot of the time. So I stuck it for two weeks. It was just, I was supposed to do eight weeks. It was just terrible. I mean, nobody came in, it was raining, and I was drinking too much. And it was just, I was depressed. So I decided to go home. And I went home back to Blackpool to do a Sunday show that I'd already had booked. I didn't work on a Sunday in Scotland. And uh, I did this Sunday show and decided that really I couldn't face it again. So I rang the guy in Scotland and I said, do you mind if I don't come back? <laughs> um, 
And he said, well, you know, how bad is it? I said, it's terrible. Well, yeah. he knew how bad it was. He wasn't making any money. So anyway, he sort of mutually let me go. But consequently, I had no work. Yeah. And within two weeks, Opportunity Knots came in. And I went down to audition. They didn't, he wouldn't audition me, the producer. He said, oh, you comedy. I'll have to come and see you work somewhere. So he did. He came to see me work on a Friday evening. It was in two weeks of me leaving Scotland. Uh, and uh, he saw my act on the Friday night and he put me on on the Saturday. <gasps> Isn't that incredible? As quick as that. So, I mean, it must have been, a, well, I think it was a life-changing, life-changing oh, totally. thing for you. I mean, I had no idea at the time. Because you don't. I mean, when, in those days, when there was only two channels, I mean, maybe there were, I think BBC Two was just about starting with mm. three channels. Everybody watched ITV. Saturday night, 7.30, 22 million people. That's crazy. And you have no idea that you can't do it today because there's not enough people watch the channels. But in those days, 22 million people could watch you. And you were literally, you know, it made you overnight. I mean, it made me the same night I was working a working men's club up the road from the studio because you did the, in those days you did the show in the afternoon at 2.30 on a Saturday and they put it out at 7.30 no editing and I would I'd book this little working men's club and by the time I got there I was a star oh my god because the show was on at 7.30 and the people came in the club at 8 that was it yeah, and it never, I never looked back for 20 years so I mean what sort of doors did it open for you from, oh from everything the... just about Everything. It was just, just amazing. The, the, the main thing it gave me was confidence. Mm. It's a sort of being accepted thing. You know, when you slap around the clubs and do, you know, and you are not known in the business, you slap around the clubs, you're only as famous as the last place you paid. Yeah. <laughs> last night, it was, you know, 200 people in, 10 people in, 20 people. That's it. On television, 22 million people. They may not all like you. And it would be a miracle if they did. But even if 50% did, it's yeah. still 10, 12 million. It's incredible. So, uh, yeah, and it keep, that's what keeps you going. And it gives you the confidence. Because you, then you're going into venues, playing venues, where the people expect you to be funny. And you don't have to have that struggle anymore. right? Because they, if they're paid to come and see you, A, they like you. And so... You know, 99% of the battle of walking on to do comedy has been won. Yeah, and I suppose word of mouth as well. If, if people yeah. start talking about you, they're going to go, oh, my God, you sure. saw this. I saw this guy last night. You have to you have to hear him. Yeah, and, that, and that's the thing with the Parrotface thing. I mean, people still call me Freddie Parrotface Davis. That was always a mistake. I want, in the old variety days, you know, names are put there. But people would put their names on a bill, and underneath they'd have a thing called bill matter. Uh-huh. So if he was a singer, they'd put, you know, uh, recording artist, or um, direct from the, the radio, or whatever, you know, or his latest singing his latest record. But it would be underneath the name, and it would you would you would associate that with something. It would be a sort of a little like comedians. I mean, my old granddad, bless him, he was he was a, a musical comedian. And he, and he used to have under it, 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 under his name, he just said Northern Star. <laughs> For some unknown reason, Northern Star. <laughs> anyway, um, so I put, I thought, how are they going to know me? I've, I've done a few TVs, but people don't really take notice of a name because, you know, the credits go quickly. Yeah. 
So um, I thought maybe they'd know that I, I'm the guy that goes in the pet shop and shouts <laughs> parrot face at the bloke. So I said, but underneath the name, parrot face, just one word. And I think that might be recognisable. Oh, that's the guy with it, you know. Because in those days, to be very few people put photographs on posters. Right. They were just the names. No, no, no photographs. And uh, a printer, in his wisdom, decided to put the word paraphrase in the middle of the name. <laughs> and that's where it came, Freddie Paraphrase. It should never have been that. I mean, in the end, I just accepted it. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous doing radio shows. Yeah. And these posh radio announcers going... <laughs> And in the program was Freddie Parrotface Davis. <laughs> it just sounded terribly odd. <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, I've, I've lived with it and stuck with it, and people now, you know, associate me with it. So, you know, who cares? Yeah, I mean, people still know you by it now, obviously. But I mean, how did it actually? Yeah. How did you actually get the moniker initially? Ah, well, that was that was also by, you know, osmosis or something. I was working the clubs. You know, when I left Butlins in 63, I started to work at the Northern Clubs. And I very quickly caught on to the fact that I had to do something different. I was only doing a regular sort of stand-up act. I just had to be a bit different somehow. Yeah. And, I, and I was searching for this thing that would make me stand out a bit. And I couldn't find it anyway. But anyway, I was working this club. I think it must have been early in in 1964 and um i used to do a routine of gags where i would ask the audience to shout out subjects to me and i mean lots of comics have done it it's nothing new and you yeah. get shout out but you twist it to whatever you want to do so whatever the people say you can twist it to you know you ju by saying if somebody said you know a monkey with one leg you say yeah but when he had two legs <laughs> right, and you could do a gag, whatever. So and this woman said, tell us a joke about a budgie. <laughs> and I had a very old gag in the back of my head about a fella going in the pet shop and buying a budgie regard and then going back and complaining about it every week. So rather than do it as a story, I did it as a little play. And I stuck a hat on that I already had. I used to do it for props and things. I stuck this hat on, pulled down my ears, and I made him one of the characters going in the shop to complain about this budgie and took the hat off, and he was the guy behind the counter. So it was a hat on, hat off, hat on. And not only did the gag get good laughs, but all the bits leading up to it did. So every time I put the hat on, the character got a laugh as well. So I thought, maybe I'm onto something. But I never really looked at the character in a mirror because you don't. I mean, you work into an audience and they react to you or whatever because comedians can't rehearse. You have to have an audience. And anyway, a couple of months later, Palamine came with me for a night out and he said to me in a car coming back, you know the thing you do with the hat? I said, yeah. He said, it's a very funny head, you know. It's just like a, like a good head for television. I got home and I looked at it in the mirror for the first time and I thought, and looking at it in the mirror, just with the head, I thought, yeah, he's not wrong. That would make a great television head. And that, I thought, I think I might have found something here. And then I started to get known in the clubs for the guy with the hat on. Not paraphrase, just the guy with the hat. Mm. And then I got a little bit of a following around Manchester, which isn't very much, but it was a bit of a following. But it allowed me to continue to be squeaky clean. Because that was the training at Butlins. 
So whilst there were blue comics around, I could be clean because the character was, you know, obviously funny. And really, that's that's the story in a nutshell. So, and that's the way I, I sort of dragged myself out of the clubs because the guy, every time the guy went in the pet shop, he shouted at the fella behind the counter, "Come here, parrot face," <laughs> <laughs> which is quite funny. And the the guy behind the counter was, you know, was, uh, was getting annoyed, you know. But um, and that was that was how it started. The problem was once I'd done a few TVs, finding material, and I had to very quickly get hold of some writers who did feed me with some very good stuff. I had some very good guys, you know. But um, yeah, so that really is how it all came about. Yeah, I mean, it was. I suppose it was the purity of it, wasn't it? That it was such a, it was proper gags. Do you know what I mean? You didn't have to kind of stoop to different levels to to get a no. laugh. No, no. I, I, I felt he was a, such an innocent character that I wouldn't, I couldn't do that with him anyway. Yeah. Didn't quite work, you know. He was a little bit of a, a bit of an idiot, really. <laughs> um, complaining about the birds all the time, he was, he was a bit of an idiot. But, um, but anyway, I say it, it served its purpose. Yeah. You know, and as I say, from that opportunity, not thing, I don't think I looked back for twenty years. What it did, it elevated me in the business. I, I was able then to do what I really wanted to do, which was work in theatres. I mean, I, I worked the clubs because one had to. But when I got into theatres, I got into theatres very quickly from there. I, I started to work with The Bachelors, and uh, who were very, very popular at the time with yeah. their records. And they were doing lots of tours and summers and pantos. And I, I, I went in with them, so which gave me the theatre experience as well. Uh, which was great. I mean, it was probably... Then I started sort of topping bills in theatres, but it was about 1967, which was about three years after that, I first really, really topped the bill for a season in Panto in Bradford at the Alhambra. Mm. And the pantomime ran for 13 weeks. Oh, my God. I know. Those were the days when they did, of course. You also you played with uh, Cliff Richard as well, I think. That's right. I did a season at the Blading with Cliff um, uh, in 19... 19- I'm looking at my posters on my wall here. 1974. Yeah, it was lovely, actually. He did a season. I think he did four or five weeks. Um, it was a nice bill, actually. Little and larger on the bill, Sid and Eddie. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was good. As I say, he, he just packed them out every week. It was just, just absolutely amazing. But the Palladium has its own sort of atmosphere. Things happen at the Palladium that don't happen anywhere else. I mean, the, the oddest things happen. You never know who's coming in because it's really in the heart of London and, and just uh, amazing things happen. I mean, one, one, I'll tell you a story. One night, the stage doorkeeper, who in himself was famous, um, George, he, it really was, and everybody knew George at the stage door that played him, and he would protect you as well. You know, the people come to the stage door and said, oh, can I see him? Can I have his autograph? And he would protect you. Say, no, they will be out at a certain time and all the artists will be out and whatever. But um, these three, they really look like gangsters standing in the stage door, you know, the fedoras and the big jackets. <laughs> and they wanted, they asked to see me. So he came up, he said, there's three guys want to see you. He said, do you want me to call security? And I said, why? He said, they look a bit shady. So I said, well, I'll come out and have a look at them. So these three big guys were there. One of the guys said to me, uh, Mr. Davis, we've just been to see your performance here. We're from uh, we're from Los Angeles, and we'd like to book you on the Dean Martin show. <gasps> so I go, I, I say, it's a wind-up, you know. 
this is a wind-up. Got to be. And I look at them and I start to smile. And they're dead straight. So I said, like an idiot, do you have any form of identification? <laughs> <laughs> so this guy pulls out his wallet and takes his gold, this gold MasterCard out, credit card, and he shows it to me. And he said, executive producer, Dean Martin Productions. <gasps> <laughs> I said, oh, I'm very sorry. So anyway, they, they hired this theatre, a theatre in London, I don't know which one it was now, for, on a Sunday. And they took all the comedians that they could get hold of and film them all doing their act, myself included, lots of other comics, and they put it out as a Dean Martin summer replacement show where Dean actually introduced the acts, but he wasn't there. <laughs> you know, he just sort of, ladies and gentlemen, now from England we have a guy, and, the, you know, and, and then they, they would bring the act on and did it like that. And um, that, that, that's all it was. I remember there, there was a crit came from some American newspaper, tiny thing about an inch column, and it just sort of mentioned, and there was a guy on called Parrot Face. That was all he said. <laughs> just a guy on called Parrot Face. That was it, you know. So many years later, when I worked with um, Jerry Lewis, you know, we'd obviously were talking about it, and I said to him, is Dean a taboo subject? And he said, not at all. Dean and I are great friends. We always have been. All this thing in the press about us splitting up. Yeah, we were parted for a few years, but now we're great friends. And now he won't accept my help. No, he said he's become a recluse and I can't do anything for him. And, and that's what happened. Um, and that's, that's what Jerry told me. So, so there you go. Because they were America's darlings. They were just everywhere in America. They were huge in the 50s. Absolutely huge. They played like six weeks at the Paramount in New York and all these wonderful clubs and they were just absolutely huge, the two of them. He was a very good-looking Italian singer and Jerry was a, you know, a crazy <laughs> knockabout comic and the, the, the thing between the two of them was apparently magic. So when they split up, the American public were furious yeah. because they were the favourite. It's a bit like Mock and White splitting up. You think, how can, how dare they do that? You know, in a, as a comparison thing, but in the States, it was absolutely huge. And um, because they were, they were, you know, they were American darling, but uh, but they, they they survived. I mean, Jerry went on to do his thing and Dean went on with the, with the Rat Pack and everything, but uh, they both had amazing careers as well. You know, Jerry was a very good actor, actually. Yeah, I mean, they both ploughed their own furrows, didn't they? You yeah, know. they did, absolutely. So, I mean, you came from a, a showbiz family initially. I did. My granddad was a, a music, working musical comic when I was very young. He, um, he he toured the halls, well, you know, from the 20s onward. And he worked with, obviously, all the people of that era. But he was also a very good writer, a granddad. He used to write quite a lot of material and music. He used to write stuff for Gracie Fields. And, and uh, there was a there was a comic in the 40s who came to, to the fore. There was a comedian called Sid Field, who many older comedians remember as being just brilliant. He was a northern comic who was about, well, he's in his 40s, I think. He was, yeah, he was in his 40s. And he hadn't gone to national service. He hadn't gone during the war. He hadn't gone in. But I, I, whether he was too old to be conscripted, you know, cryptid or whatever. But anyway, they brought him into the West End and he was a huge hit. Because in all the 
Farachi artists and people had, had gone off fighting the war. Um, so we're looking at, you know, during the war, and he, they brought him to London, and he was a huge hit, this wow. guy called Sid Field. People revered him. He had about three or four very funny stage sketches, one being a golf sketch and um, a hairdresser sketch. And he did these sketches in, in reviews in London, usually at the Prince of Wales. The reason I'm telling this story because he used to work with my granddad in the 20s, right, in the capacity of being his stooge. So he was my granddad's stooge. And when he went into the West End, it was said by a lot of comics at the time and written in books that he stole a lot of my grandfather's, not, not material as such, but way of working, you know, sort of a, a, a persona of working, the way he worked. And when I went, to, I was taken to meet him in 1947. I was 10. And I do remember, well, you remember these landmarks in your life. I mean, I'd been evacuated and went back to London in 1947. I went to stay with them, Gran and Grandad. They lived in uh, in Camden Town. And they took me to all the theatres. There, there were lots of varieties there, just reopening and stuff. And one of them was at the Prince of Wales, where this Sid Phil was. And I was taken to his dressing room. And I do believe that Sidfield was actually paying my granddad for the use of the act. Yeah. Oh, um, I've written it in my wonderful biography, available in all good news agents. Excellent. Yeah, we'll get a, get a few more copies sold. Um, so so <laughs> comedy's, comedy's in your blood. I mean, was it like when you were in school and stuff, did you have kind of any inkling as to what you were going to do when you left school oh, I eventually? I never wanted to do anything else. Never wanted to do anything else. That was my... I just aspired to go into show business. I never thought I would do anything else. When I went into an amateur dramatics when I was 10, 11, I started to go to this Sunday school in Salford, and um, they sort of almost immediately put me in their amateur dramatics thing. I was very small. very I'm, very, I'm quite small now, actually. I'm only one foot nine. But, but I, um, I'm not standing on a chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm actually five, five foot six. But I, I was quite small when I was young, particularly when I was born. <laughs> anyway, I went into this Sunday school and they did amateur dramatics and plays and pantomimes. Yeah. And really, that's how I started doing amateur dramatics. Uh, and uh, I joined another amateur dramatic variety group, and they used to tour around old folks' homes and institutions and thing and, and that's really how I started but, but then I went in, when I went into the army I knew I couldn't do anything before I'd gone into the army because yeah. you had to get that out of the way all young men went in the army when they were 18 it, it was conscription in yeah. those days in the 50s I mean it, sh it finished shortly after me two or three years after it finished but I was one of the last last ones to be conscripted I mean they didn't really know what to do with you in those days. there were no wars I think there was something going on in Korea, but I wasn't sent out there because I'd already sawn off my trigger finger. <laughs> but um, I did, so I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't. I mean, I tried everything to get out. I said I got one leg shorter than the other, and they said, "Don't worry, where we're sending you, the ground is <laughs> uneven." So that's a very old joke. Anyway, um, so there we were. I, I did my national service and. Uh, during the, when I was, funnily enough, I had, a, I had a communication from a guy the other day who was a young corporal who was training us, or me and my platoon, when I first...
first went into the uh, into the army, I, we, we were we were stationed in Devizes in Wiltshire, where was which was the training ground for the Royal Army Pay Corps, which mm. I'd been in an office before working in an office, so they put me in the Pay Corps, uh, and uh, and that's where I did my basic training. And it was a young corporal, and he used to sleep in a little. Um, barricaded off room at the end of the platoon hut. There were sort of 20 guys in this platoon, and at the end was the corporal's quarters, but it was private. Right. And as soon as the lights were out, I'd start telling the lads jokes, right? And he, used, he told me he used to listen to these jokes, and of course and he couldn't react because he was in a disciplinary position, yeah. being, you know, my superior corporal. But he wrote to me many years later and said he used to write all these jokes down <laughs> and tell them to the lads in the mess the following day. <laughs> so, uh, so I even, yeah, even those days, I was, you know, I was well into it. And I used to organise the parties and we had a passing out party and I was designated to run it. And so I've just always been in that sort of, you know, environment. Yeah. I mean, you had people like the, the goons met when, when they were in the army, I think, as well, didn't That's they? That's right. That's right. Well, they were, they were sort of a decade before me. I mean, they started in radio in the early 50s, and uh, they were really anarchic and just absolutely brilliant. There were three great comedy brains, you see. You yeah. had Milligan, who used to write it, and Harry Seek, who had some very funny voices, uh, and, and, of course, Peter Sellers, yes. one of the greatest impressionists of all time, you know, in his day. He, was just, he could do anybody, anything. That's... And that's how, you know, he rose to fame. But there were all variety turns around, you know, the 50s. Well, they were, they started out in the army. You know, Milligan was a trumpeter in the army. Wow. Um, yeah, he, he, played, he played the trumpet in a band, yeah. I don't know what Harry did, but I think, you know, they were all, all in the army together. They used to do that Ensor thing, didn't they? You yeah. Entertaining the troops, yeah. Yeah, but the fact that they're still loved, you know, loved as much today, if not more, kind of stands to their t- talent, you know? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And that is the essence of of what I think stardom is, you know. I mean, people, the public's perception of a star, the public's perception is somebody who is loved. Mm. You know, you'll hear them say, oh, I love him or I love him. That's their perception of a star. But in real terms, a star really is somebody who puts bums on seats, you know, yeah. who's, a, who's an attraction, really. So, um, you know, there are sort of, Two definitions, really. Sentimental songs, sentimental melodies, mean all the world to me. Um, so, I mean, you've you've worked over the years. You, you've worked with some of the greats of uh, in comedy and variety. You got Dick Emery, absolute legend. Dave Allen, Judy Garland, Jerry Lewis, obviously, yeah. to name but a few. So, do you do you have a favourite person that you've you've worked with over the years, and maybe they, that inspired you as a as a comedian? Well, the funny thing is, you know, when you when you're doing it, when you're in the action, you know, you you make friends with the people you work with. We mm. all do in, yeah. in everyday life, you know. So you're friends with that person for that period of time, uh, and I suppose the person who would the two people stick in my stick in my memory banks as being. You know, going above and beyond being a friend and a compatriot and a, a co-worker. One was Frankie Vaughan, who, who I worked with in Coventry in Panto, who was just the loveliest, sweetest, kindest man you could ever wish to work with. Just 
absolutely superb. And the other, of course, is Ken Dodd. Oh, yes. I mean, people talk about Ken Dodd being revered with the public. He crossed both barriers. He was loved by the, the public, and he was also a very big attraction, right? He packed them out wherever he went. So he was a star on both sides of the spectrum. But quite apart from that, he was also a very kind man. I mean, particularly to other comedians. He was absolutely steeped and revered for his comedy talent. I mean, he was unique in his work, Ken. And, uh, but he really was a, a really, really kind man. If he could do you a favor, he would. I mean, he did the foreword to my book, very, very effusive. And I mean, just some of the kindest things I've ever, I've ever heard, had said about me. It was absolutely wonderful. Bless him, now he's gone. And I have the opportunity of returning the favor, but you won't see it, because he's got a, a, tri a, a second tribute book coming out. A, you know, letters of tribute from people who absolutely adore him. And I've been asked to do the forward for that. Oh, so wow. I'm going to be a little payback for me, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to writing that. But uh, um, as I say, so he's the other standout. A standout person, but you know people that you work with generally, your your compatriots and your you know your your mates, you know as you go through life. I mean, over the years, you know Val Dunica and I did some TV with him. Uh, I remember working the, the the famous Battle of Variety Club with Val, but he was just as nice as he looked, you know. And Jerry Lewis, who had didn't have the best name in the business, he came over and did the film Funny Bones, and he was delightful. He was absolutely a very, very nice man, you know. He well, he came over to me and introduced himself, you know. Just uh, and you hear these horror stories about people. You, know, you take people as you find them, of course. I suppose, you know, we can all be horrors when we want to be, can't we? <laughs> Including you, Paula. Oh, very true. I very heard true. You were a horror before oh. you ran with. We won't, we won't we won't talk about that, Freddie. We won't talk about that. But I mean, <laughs> Lee Evans as well. Very early in his career, you were in Funny Bones well, it was together. His first film, Funny yeah. Bones. Yes. And um, what a brilliant comic, though. Oh, he was a very, very... He, he was what the film was about, which was called Funny Bone. And when Peter Chelson, the director, found him, you know, I'd seen him before on television. I'd seen him do something, and I thought, this boy's great. And I rang him and said, you really ought to have a look at Lee Evans. And he'd written it down somewhere, and it'd gone into his memory banks. So when he actually booked him for the film, and he rang me, he said, I booked a guy, I went to see a guy last night called Lee Evans, who's just what we're looking for, funny bones and everything. Well, I said, well, I did tell you about him months ago, you know, and he went, do you know, I think you did. I sort of remember you saying that now. But there aren't, there's still a lot, a lot of people around who do have that kind of physical comedy. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, you can count them on hand. There's people like Lee Evans, who actually has retired. She keeps saying mm, he's retired from comedy. Yeah. Um, Rowan Atkinson. Uh, people have that, that physical attribute for for comics, for comedy. Um, because all comics used to have to have it uh, in, in the, well, when I say, I call I say the beginning, say at the turn of the century, you know, when variety theatres were really in their heyday. All comics had to have some physical, comedic, thing about them because the sound was so bad in the theatres yeah so either they did an eccentric dance or they did a comedy sketch you know and the, the one of the most famous ones from those days of course was casey's court 
and they, they went over to America and toured, and that's where Charlie Chaplin and Stan Lowe all come from. That's their era, because they were all physical comedians. No, I remember Lee used to get compared to Norman Wisdom constantly. That's right, he hated it. He hated it. It's only because of the physical comedy, because Norman yeah. was a physical comic also, and so was Lee. Yeah. And they had that, they looked a bit alike, you know, but really they were nothing alike. Um, well, I wouldn't say they were nothing alike. I mean, they both did physical comedy, mm. but, they, but they didn't have, uh, he didn't do what Norman did, and Norman didn't do what, what Lee did. I thought I thought Lee was brilliant in Funny Bones. Have you seen the film? Oh yes, yes. You have seen it. the film. Yes, I have. I have. When it came out, I think I saw it. I need to rewatch it. I think Freddie need to have another have another rewatch. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I've been a fan of Lee since um, I saw him supporting Jack D. Yes. Many, many. Really? It was, I think it was early nineties, um, and yeah. he was supporting Jack D. And I was, you know, people were just blown away by the just the physicality of this guy and he was just yeah, kind of yeah. everyone was just so taken back by how talented he was and the fact that he, he was, was he was, he was supporting he was, well, he still is talented you know? oh man yeah um, and when he said he was retiring I was like oh my god I know you know we, we, nobody knows why I mean, other than the fact that he could probably afford to well yeah and he's absolutely devoted to his wife and child absolutely devoted and he never stopped talking about them anyway on the set never uh, and he just adores them, and he's just a very devoted family man, right? And, and that sort of devotion that he has, and it's a bit, you know, it's all happening today, isn't it, with with Meghan and and Harry? Oh my goodness! You know, he's a devoted family man, and he wants the best for his wife, really. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's uh, all just crazy, isn't it, at the moment? In the oh, what's crazy. going on? Absolutely crazy. Yeah. So um, yeah, I remember, I remember Lee. He used to sweat buckets, didn't he? He'd literally come oh, off, yeah, and he'd just yeah, he be. Still does. He's a professional. Man, he, he, he works very hard. Yeah. He does work very hard. He runs about a lot and, and does... But, yes, he is a professional sweater. <laughs> he is indeed. So, I mean, who would have been your comedy heroes growing up? You must have had people that you looked up to and aspired, aspired well, to. Well, Jerry Lewis was, really, mm. in those days. Um, anybody who's on television, I mean, Danny Kaye. Yes. Uh, was very big in films, etc. In fact, I used to have a nickname. They used to call me Danny at school. Where that came from, I don't know, but I suppose because you mimic people. Yeah. You mimic people who are famous, you know, yeah. on, on. Well, it, there was no television, it was all film. So you mimic those people, you know, and I probably mimicked Danny Kay. I'm, in fact, I think I did. That's why I had a nickname of Danny. But that, as I say, you, you do. I mean, uh, there were lots of um, radio comedians. Because radio was big, like the goons, so people mimic the goons, you know. <laughs> Blue bottle, Blue bottle yeah. <laughs> um, so, Freddie, is there are there any comedians today that you you kind of look at and go, oh, he's very very funny? Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's some very good comics around, and um, there's a lot of dross. I mean, there always was, mm. but now, of course, comedy being king, which it is, uh, come back to being king again. Um, you see, comedy clubs have replaced variety theatres. Yeah. Because people like to go out and see acts and things, and they, they go out to comedy clubs now. And, and comedy clubs have created their own audience. I mean, people say, oh, I can't be doing with all those modern comics, all swearing and everything. But it's become what it is. You know, I mean, it started this alternative, laughingly called alternative comedy. Yeah. It started out in, in, you know, in student halls, etc. And it was literally student humour, which has come from there. You know, they always said that jokes and comedy came from the universities anyway but now of course it's 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 become it's 
become the norm. I mean, you can go to comedy schools now. Mm. Never used to be able to before. Um, who do I like? Who do I like now? Oh, there's lots of people I like. I mean, I like Lee Mack very much. Um, I'm trying to think who I've seen recently who I quite liked. Sean Hughes. Uh-huh. I like Sean Hughes. I mean, there's a lot of guys I like going around. Some of the stuff that Jimmy Carr does, I, I like. I like Jack D. Yeah. I love Count Arthur Strong. Oh, my God. Isn't he amazing? Oh, fantastic. I love character really, comedy. genuinely makes me laugh. Um, I like the pub landlord, but the last time I went to see him, which was a few weeks ago, <laughs> I actually couldn't hear a word he was saying. Oh, really? And it, I don't think it was so much to sound to him. He just talked so quickly. And, you know, with, with hearing appliances, and it's not always easy to pick stuff up. But um, it's a shame, really, because he, was, he did very well. Uh, as I say, they're the ones that come to mind. As I say, Arthur Strong, I love. Uh, who was the one I wanted? I like Ardell O'Hannon. He's coming around soon, a lovely Irish comic. And I love Dave Allen. But when, when I worked with Dave in Butlins, he actually worked like Jerry Lewis. Right. He was nothing like he finished up. He worked like, you know, because we all mimic people we like, you know, when we started. I mean, everybody starts with, you know, copying somebody to start with. That's how you get started. Really, you can't just go on and say, I'm going to do this. Right. I mean, I know a lot of comics go on and they'll write something, write a piece and go on and try and do it. But it's only the having the experience to do it that eventually makes them any good. You can't be you can't be good immediately. Nobody can. Yeah. I mean, it's like the old impressionists. You know, you used to get in the 70s and 80s. Like Mark Yarwood, for example. Um, oh, Mark. Well, Mark, Mark was a mate of mine, you know. Oh, wow. Um, we worked together in several shows, yeah. He was, was incredible. God, very clever. He gave up. He, he, he just gave up. He just decided... He did, a, he didn't want to do it anymore, and B, he felt he was he was becoming out of favour. Um, yes, it was weird, really. I saw him being interviewed with something, and he just he just felt that he was becoming perhaps a bit dated. Um, I don't know, but mm. anyway. Yeah, I suppose it depends on who you're impersonating, doesn't it? It has to be kind yes. of... Yes. Up to date you and know, stuff. People come and go. Yeah. People come and go. Exactly. You know, somebody once said to me years ago, if you can stay in the number two dressing room, you work forever. It's only the ones in the number one dressing room that keep changing. Which is true, of course. Look back at the names of, you know, ten years ago and see the ones that have gone, you know, it's it is true. It is true. Mm, yeah. I mean, Mike Yarwood, he was just so, so talented. And it was just oh. as you said, he just disappeared off the scene totally. That's right, yeah. Well I think it was a it was a self choice. So. Right. It was a self-choice. He's still, still very much alive. Yeah. I haven't seen him for years. I think he lives down in Stockport somewhere, you know. I keep saying I'm going to try and get in touch with him, actually. We did a couple of big shows together. But he was really great, was Mike. Yeah, Absolutely this is the time, great. Freddie. This is the, the cue for you to get back in touch with Mike. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So you were in Harry Potter. You were in one of the Harry Potter movies. in the, the Oh, prison- yes, that was amazing. Prisoner was of Azkaban. That, that must have been amazing. I mean, I was living in Scotland at the time, right? And J.K. Rowling literally lived down the road. Bought this mansion down the road from where I was living, and I'd never seen her, never met her at all, um, until the premiere of the film. You see, she gave the brief when she wrote the books and she said we're going to make them into films. She put certain stipulations on it: a, they could only use English actors, and it had to be made in an English studio. So they built a studio to make it. Leavesden, they, they equipped it to make the Harry Potter films. And it became, a, it was an industry for yeah. whatever it was, seven films, seven years. Just 
absolutely stunning. I mean, I only had a little bit. I was just a talking picture, but it was just wonderful to do, to be a part of that huge organisation. It was like a big factory. Yeah. Just absolutely huge. Uh, And um, as I say, money was no object. And and the the, the films showed it. You know, they were beautifully made films. I mean, the, 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 the opening... I should say the premiere was at the uh, Odeon Leicester Square in London, and um, they had the, the, the opening party for 2,000 people who were in the <laughs> cinema who were invited. The opening party was at the Natural History Museum. Oh, <laughs> oh my, oh, my what, what a place to do it. Uh, yeah, amazing. But I'll tell you a lovely story about that, because Alan Rickman, who was in them, as you know, yeah, uh, I hadn't met him before, and he uh, we passed one another at the... the that party, and he said, he said, Freddie, can I have a word with you? I said, of course, he said hello, and, and then he said, you know, I started out in the business doing pantomime at the Rex in Wimslow, and I played King Rat. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, and I've been playing the same part ever since. <laughs> <laughs> another yeah, much missed, oh my goodness, you know, another much missed talent yeah, we lost yes amazing lovely actor so have you been um have you been recognized at all from your harry potter thing i mean even a, a small part like that you'd i assume you'd still get maybe people looking at you going i know your face kind of like you know younger yeah, people yeah, maybe. You get that. i get a lot of that yes people write to me look a lot of people write to me well from from all over the world yeah you know, because potter was so you know universal mm. um you know, asking for autographs from various parts of the world, and they have these pottery reunions. I haven't been on one of them yet, but uh, but as I say, I only literally had a spit, and I was only in it for about twenty seconds. You know, as a talking picture on the wall. But um, I think I, I said to him, he wasn't there, of course. I did it on a green screen. I just I, all I said to him was, "Put that light out." <laughs> he had a light on the end of his wand, of his magic wand, and he was he was walking along this corridor. And one of the pictures said, put the light out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah. oh, you could imagine it. But, I mean, they've, they've used everybody, you know. I mean, when I, the one I did, one of the other portraits was Sir Peter Blake. You know, he he is, I think he's still alive. He's a famous artist. Designed the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club. Oh, right. Thing. Yeah, and he was being costume fitted at the same time as me. <laughs> Um, and somebody said, have you met Sir Peter Blake? And I said, no, and I go in. And he, because he, he looked a bit like Van Dyke, he had a little beard and a moustache, and we, we stood and had a chat, you know, and we, we talked, obviously, the conversation went round to the Beatles album. So I said, apart from the fact that he's probably your most famous work, <laughs> how much did he get for it? He said, 200 pounds. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. incredible. Isn't incredible. that crazy? You kind of assume these people are millionaires, do you know what I mean? And then... Yeah. But, yeah. you know, at the time, wow. when it, whatever it was in the 60s when he designed that, it's an iconic album cover, isn't it? You know, the Sergeant Pepper one. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as I said, you must have met some You must have met some incredible, incredible people over your career. You know, as, as yeah, I, I, I named a few actually. that you'd... Yeah, I named a few that you earlier. You don't think about it at the time. No, exactly. I've had a, I've had a marvellous career, you know, Paul. You know, I really have. I mean, I didn't realise... Um, because you don't, you live it, you live the life you live. Yeah. And I, I wrote, as I said, my biography, which uh, is out now, and it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was writing of it that I thought, yeah, 
I mean, what was that? Is it difficult? Um, I mean, I, I don't think I've spoken to anybody that's written on autobiography before. Um, I mean, how difficult was it remembering the various chapters in your life? Or did you find it quite easy to, to put all the pieces together? Well, one thing led to another. Um, I think when you're in, in, the, in the business, I, my life seemed to have go, gone from... Um, I, I've had three careers. Really. Mm. I started out as a stand-up. And then in the early 80s, I went into management and production and uh, I still carried on working and doing stand-up as well, but I actually actively went into manager, management and production and in 1980 I went to went to America for about five years when I worked on cruise ships oh wow yeah I did five years on the cruise ships I went back to doing my act again and we came back in 92 I sort of made the conscious decision that I was going to have a little go at acting because the film Funny Bones was sort of rearing its head it had been written years before and had been left on a shelf somewhere in some some film company's production vaults and then peter chelsom who was the director and wrote it got the money from disney to make it and then he had to buy it back from this production company in order to do it yeah he'd already he saw some like working title told it and they hadn't done anything with it so he bought it back and and we made the film in 94. So I sort of made this conscious decision to do try a bit of acting, you know. Because it's a natural thing for comics to do, I suppose. Going to act, lots of comedians go into acting. Yeah. Because that's what we're doing on the stage. We're doing an act. You know, we're, we're performing an act with somebody else. It's not me. Mm. Did you ever keep a diary or anything that you could kind of reference to? Or was it all no. purely... No, it's just a memory thing. I mean, yeah. was, I said my life went in eras. You know, mm. so usually from Christmas to Christmas, because you know where you are in pantomime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From pantomime to pantomime, and you think, no, that year was that, that year was that. I mean, some of the things I got slightly wrong. I mean, I didn't realise, and, and I, oddly you should mention it, I did find a diary from the time in 1960 when I was in Danoon and I'd thought it was the end of the first week that I'd walked away from Danoon mm. that I did Opportunity Knocks and I was wrong it was the end of the second week yeah and it wasn't until I found this diary and I said okay I got that wrong in the book I thought it was the end of the first week and I thought I'd, I'd been in Danoon for four weeks and I'd actually only been there for two so it must have seemed like four weeks <laughs> Says a lot, doesn't it? That you, you kind of think you were there for it longer. It felt time. like longer. It was a long two weeks. <laughs> so, I mean, what sort of stuff were you doing on the cruise ships? Was it just stand-up? Well, I, I was mainly doing stand-up, but then I became a cruise director. Right. The cruise director walked off and they asked me would I fancy having a go at doing the job. And I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And the money was a lot better yeah. being the boss man. So I did. I took it. And I, I think I did it for about three years. Um, but I was... I think I've always said I was too old for the job. Um, you know, a, a cruise directors, particularly on the American cruise ships, are 30-year-old blonde magicians. Yes, yes. Um, all the all-American boy, and I was the opposite. You know, I was a 50-odd-year-old Jewish-looking English comic. <laughs> and didn't... <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, of course, we used to get a lot of, of Jewish people on the ship, you know, particularly from New York, but uh, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about music now, Freddie. Um, music. What sort of what sort of music are you into? Are you into any particular genre? Is there any kind of particular music that floats no, your boat? I, th- I think I 
I think I, I've stuck a little bit. I stuck it a bit in the 50s and 60s. Uh-huh. Um, I never quite got into rock and roll. I think because I was, con- you know, by the time I, in 1960, I was what? Uh, well, by the time the Beatles took off, I was about 26, 27, 28. And I was sort of a bit set in my ways. I was in, you know, Sinatra and uh, Sammy Davis and those sort of people. Mm. And I seem to have got stuck in that era. Don't ask me why, I just did. And I never quite got into rock and roll. I think, if the truth be known, when I was in Danoon in Scotland, on a Sunday, I used to play in a rock band. The guy that was running this debacle in, uh, <laughs> in Danoon had a club in Millport. And he's, I think he had three or four sons, but they didn't have a drummer. So I was just said, can you play the drum? I said, well, I said a bit. I used to sort of play it at Butlins a bit in the bar, you know, with a with an old squeeze box player. But I'm, you know, I've never sort of played rock and roll because it's hard, hard, banging, hard, yeah, yeah. hard. So anyway, I did a couple of Sundays. It was knackered me um, <laughs> before I came away, and um, I think that sort of put me off because <laughs> I said, "What do you want me to play?" He said, "Will you start and we'll join oh, in?" Oh no. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like that. But anyway, I taught my son how to play the drums. So yeah. And he became a very good rock drummer. But that, I think that that as well. But I think I'd sort of probably a bit set in my ways. So I'm, I was into sort of swing and all of it. But I do like, there's a lot of stuff uh, since then that I've, that I've, uh, I've liked, um, you know, over the years. I mean, I love all the Beatles stuff. I, I, I just adore all, I just adore all the Beatles stuff. Yeah, it's timeless, uh, though, isn't it? It's really timeless. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, at the time, they didn't think it was going to be, I don't think. They thought it was a passing phase, but mm. then it just sort of it just caught on, didn't it? It became the thing. I mean, I know? suppose when you were, you were hanging around with Dean Martin and these, you know, listening to Sinatra and stuff, it's, I suppose it's going to be a natural thing that that's the kind of music that you're going to be drawn to, you know? Possibly, possibly. Mm. But, I mean, I love stuff, you know, I mean... Um, I think not rock. Funny enough, not rock and roll. I, would, I was never attracted to, you know, the Boss or, or yeah. the Rolling Stones. It, it was always much more melodic music that I liked. You know, I recorded. Uh, you know, I, I, I had quite a recording career myself. I mean, I recorded quite a lot of albums for children. I mean, I resurrected all the all the fifties um, family favourites, children's stuff. I did all those, and then then I made a straight record in nineteen seventy two called So Lucky, which although it had a lot of plays here, it didn't do uh, very well, but it actually became number one in Brazil. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, Brazil and the Philippines. Um, and they had a penchant over there for putting out big British ballads, big English ballads. I think um, guy had a big hit over there. Anyway, this particular track of mine, which, which was a lovely song, actually, I have to say it was a lovely song, because Ken Dodd was recording straight stuff, or straight stuff, you know, yeah. ballads. So this friend of mine, recording manager, found this ballad for me, and it had been written by Bill Oh, the, the lyrics had been written by Bill Owen, you know. Oh, Bob yes, Bob. Uh, yeah. Last of Summer uh, Wine. Who, who was a songwriter. Uh, anyway, he wrote this, this lovely song called So Lucky, and it, I don't know, it was the first track on on a compilation album, and of course the first track always is the one that gets paid. It's easy to put on, and that's how it became a hit in Brazil. So much so did it become a hit that they gave me a gold record. <laughs> yeah. you, you should have toured over there, Freddie. Gone and done like a, a you know a tour of 
Brazil. Yeah. You could have been like Harry Styles. You could have been like the Harry Styles of the of the day. You know. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> I was a boy band all on my own. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, you played like Des O'Connor as well. I think you you worked. Des with... made a lot of straight songs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I did a lot with Des. Worked a lot with Desi, and um, Des is just he's just a few years older than me. But we, yes, we did a lot together. In fact, it was Desi who actually told me to go and work at Butlins. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I was in the army, and he was doing a variety show in Newcastle, and I went backstage to see him. I didn't know him, and I called him at the stage door, and I said, you know, how do you get into show business? I mean, I was 17, you know. No, no, I wasn't. I was 19, 19. And I said, how do you get into show business? He said, well, do what I did. I went to Butlins. It was a red coat. So I did. I reminded him of it years later, because he didn't remember. <laughs> you know, but he did put me on a lot of his TV shows, though. I did, quite, I did a hell of a lot with him, yeah. Yeah, I loved all the stuff he did with Morecambe and Wise. Do you know what I mean? They just oh, yeah. used to, yeah. to <laughs> take the mickey out of him constantly. Oh, you know? totally. <laughs> well, they meant it. <laughs> I yeah. think he meant it, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's kind of crazy how, I mean, you kind of look at comedians like yourself, you know, that have kind of, I don't know, lasted generations. People still love you and your work now, you know, and you're revered. And it, it's kind of... Like, I don't know, comedians that are around now, you kind of wonder whether they have the same longevity. Do you know what I mean? As, yeah, well, they're not getting the exposure, yourselves. you see, that I did. Yeah, you maybe. Know, it, it, or people of my era did. Mm. Because, as I say, it was 22 million people. So there's a nostalgic feel about it, you know. I mean, not everybody liked it, but, you know, quite a few people did. So, it, as I say, it had a. It, it, now it has a nostalgic feel about it, because now I'm an old, you know, I'm an old tosser. And... Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm amazed that people recognise me. You know, I mean, I used to have dark hair, and I was used to be much taller, and uh, and now I'm, I'm much shorter, <laughs> and I've got white hair. So just need to get the hat back on. You know, get the hat back on, Freddie. Every time. Oh, well, I must tell you a funny story. Go on. I went to a show in the West End about two or three months ago, and I had to pick the tickets up. Right, somebody had gone in earlier and put the tickets for me and left them at the box office, so I had to go and pick them up. And I went to this box office in the West End. And the box office had closed, so you had to go round the corner to the box office on the way in. So I go to the box office, and there's a guy selling the big issue, uh, okay, from Jamaica. And he said, mate, you've got to go round the corner for your ticket. So I said, okay. And as I walked past him, he looked at me, and he said, my name is Samuel Tweet. <laughs> oh Honestly. My, oh my and goodness. I stood with him and sang the song. Samuel Tweet song from a BBC series, and he knew it every word. Guy of about sixty. Um, oh man, he said that's my favourite series of all time. Bless him. I got one fan. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you're still very much, very much loved, Freddie. Definitely. Oh, bless um, your heart. But thank you so, so much for talking to me on this podcast. Um, it's Pleasure. been, a, it's been an absolute honour chatting with you. Okay. 